This week on Bloodstream, women with bleeding disorders get new recommendations, AAV gene therapy is off the hook for cancer development, and lockdowns impact on bullying. Then, later on the show, film director Ryan Geelan joins us to discuss his new film, My Beautiful Stutter, streaming now on Discovery+. Plus. Because he realized everything that he had been hearing from Seg about the worthiness of his voice, about how the way he spoke was beautiful, and it was the world around him that was broken and needed to be fixed. He realized in that moment that it was true. Hi all, I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. Reminder that you can watch Amy and I on our Bloodstream Media YouTube channel. You can subscribe to Bloodstream on Apple Pods or Spotify. You can stream episodes from bloodstreammedia.com and you can follow Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Reminder that PJL and I are not doctors, so please remember to consult with healthcare professionals before making any treatment decisions. I'd be shocked if they really still needed us to clarify that we're not doctors at the beginning of the show. It seems as though it's rather obvious at this the point. script. Patrick, hmm? stick to the script. Oh, right, the script. Sorry. Thanks for listening, rate, review, and tell a friend about us. And hey, welcome to Bloodstream. interesting show today we have some encouraging updates some less encouraging but equally important real talk about bullying uh amy we get to grill one of our favorite colleagues and co-workers and try to throw him off his game i don't know about you that's probably my number one goal for the interview is just to throw ryan off listen i have to agree with you on that i can't wait to throw ryan off can't wait <laughs> <laughs> what a friendly environment he's walking into uh before we get into the episode amy just let's check in hi good morning how are you Good morning. I'm well. I'm well. How are you? Here we are, Bloodstream. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. It is. We're recording this on World Health Day, April 7th for the April 9th release. So good to be spending World Health Day with you and good to be speaking to all of you listeners on the heels of World Health Day. Uh, before we go further, I do want to remind you that today's episode of Bloodstream is made possible by our founding sponsor, Takeda. Takeda has committed to resources for the bleeding disorders community that you can find at bleedingdisorders.com. Resources for people affected by hemophilia, von Willebrand disease, inhibitors, and much more. You can find all of those resources as well as more on Takeda's commitment to our community by going to bleedingdisorders.com. Takeda is there to support you every mile of the journey. Amy, before we get into bullying and our, our personal experiences with it. There's three new news items that have come up while I was out, while we were doing our Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month stuff. And I just wanted to make sure we hit on these. Listeners may have already read about them or heard about them elsewhere. So I'll go through them kind of quick in just a few minutes. Absolutely. All right. Number one, the first is in an article published in Science Magazine, which, hey, what a name for a magazine, huh? Talk about a broad <laughs> umbrella. Hey, what do you guys want to call our magazine? Science. Oh, yeah? What, what, do you, what part of science do you cover? All of it. Okay. So anyway, it's called Science Magazine. And the article is titled, Experimental Gene Therapy for Hemophilia Probably Did Not Cause Patients Liver Tumor. You may recall toward the end of 2020, uh, there was a story about someone developing a liver cancer while on a gene therapy clinical trial or involved in a program. Well, we have an update from this article. Quote, the company Unicure has concluded that the virus widely used in gene therapy 
was very unlikely to have caused liver cancer in a hemophilia patient in a clinical trial. The findings, quote, support the conclusion that an AAV integration event was not likely responsible for the liver tumor, says hemophilia gene therapy researcher Denise Sabatino of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Quote, this is good news for the field, which it is. Uh, so the patient whose liver cancer put a hold to the Unicure clinical trial, not believed to have developed that cancer as a result of AAV gene therapy, uh, gene transfer, another name for it, which, Amy, that is indeed good news. I agree. It's interesting how the uh, previous news was kind of all over everywhere, and this news was like not as easy to find. Yeah, yeah. You know, and actually that's a good point about like the thing that kind of gets our attention uh, the thing that has more of a stunning headline, like that makes the rounds. But then when there's a, a follow-up, a response, or something that's a little bit alleviating, it doesn't stir people the same way. It doesn't make the rounds in quite the same way. So I agree. So maybe, listeners, you've heard about that, but maybe you haven't because it, it, it didn't circulate nearly as widely as the original story did. But that's a very important end of that story. The, the second update... MASAC, um, the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council of the National Hemophilia Foundation, which you heard Dr. Glenn Pierce talk about on the March 24th episode of Bloodstream. Well, they've issued three new documents, all of which were updated by the NHF Board of Directors last month that pertain to women affected by bleeding disorders, to pregnancy, and to von Willebrand disease. So I will quickly give you the headline of each of those three documents. Number 264 lays out a detailed recommendation for the diagnostic evaluation and management of girls and women presenting with symptoms of a bleeding disorder, including appropriate lab testing and additional considerations such as family history. It also recommends that females with bleeding disorders are provided access to the full complement of multidisciplinary services available at hemophilia treatment centers, including appropriate therapies, clinical management, genetic testing, and counseling. So that feels as though it goes a long way toward trying to establish equity for our blood sisters. Document number 265 includes recommendations for the diagnosis and the management of women with bleeding disorders during pregnancy, labor, and delivery. The document also addresses the critical postpartum period with specific treatment recommendations designed to both mitigate the risk of bleeding-related complications in women and to enable the early diagnosis of affected infants. Another excellent recommendation that I particularly appreciate these days. And lastly, number 266 is focused exclusively on the treatment of von Willebrand disease, the most common inherited bleeding disorder. It describes the current menu of therapies available to effectively treat individuals with VWD, including types 1, type 2A, 2B, 2M for Mary, 2N for Nancy, and 3. The document also provides a series of detailed considerations for both the prescription of VWD therapies and for assessing the patient responses to treatment to both ensure efficacy and to avoid complications. So three fantastic and even in just that headline thorough updates. And I think, Amy, correct me if I'm wrong, but we'll be discussing some of this a bit more on future episodes of our uh, sister podcast, as it were, Flow. Correct. And just a reminder to all the women out there, all patients, uh, I know this, it's like a lot of information. What do you do with recommendations that come from MASAC or like the new VWD guidelines? You know, what right. what good will they do? Um, just a reminder to, to read them and to have them in your advocate arsenal, you know, so you can go into your treater and say, these are the re recommendations from MASAC um, to hopefully get you treatment. I love the postpartum treatment recommendations for women mm -hmm. with bleeding disorders. And um, those first two documents cover all women with bleeding disorders. So those that um, have mild hemophilia 
Dysphoria as well as VWD and platelet dysfunction. Um, so it covers everything. So it's it's wonderful. And uh, we'd love to, I just want to shout out, we'd love to hear personal stories of women that have utilized uh, these guidelines and these recommendations um, as, as a way of advocating for themselves. So if you have a story, feel free to reach out to me personally on, on social media and we'll, we'd love to get you on the podcast. You can also email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or if you click on the Linktree link in any of my social properties, there's also a uh, spot where you can leave a voice message if you just want to send us directly a voice message with your story. So a few different ways you can get in touch with either Amy, me, or the show itself. Lastly, how the American Rescue Plan can affect your healthcare coverage. So the American Rescue Plan, ARP is the acronym, it was signed into law on March 11th and it provides new opportunities to get health insurance coverage and Uh, or to reduce the cost of your premiums. And the National Hemophilia Foundation is strongly urging patients and families to review your coverage now to make sure you are maximizing your benefits under the new law. So listeners, you can learn more about the American Rescue Plan and NHF's call to action, the three new MASAC recommendations, and the investigation into Unicure's clinical trial by following the links in the program notes. So on last week's episode, Patrick and I spoke with Lawrence Woolard, who is a bleeding disorder patient. He's an advocate. He's an educator about articles that he recently published on education via social media in the COVID era and the experience of young people. And the one topic that we touched on, but we didn't really get into during that conversation uh, was bullying. Bullying Mm -hmm. is something that impacts households all over the world. In fact, the BBC just profiled a school in the United Kingdom, and that's where Lawrence is from, um, for all but eliminating bullying. Uh, They credit their process in large part to banning unstructured sports and recess and replacing those periods with supervised quizzes, poetry recitals, chess, choir clubs, and an alternative forms of structured social experiences, which I just found fascinating. I don't know how long quizzes are going to be the happy replacement to (laughs) soccer matches during recess. That just doesn't seem like a long term. Football, Patrick, your American is showing. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Apologies for <laughs> so terribly offending you from Denver. I just, I don't know if quizzes and chess tournaments are the secret sauce That's for fair. ending bullying. But nevertheless, as you said, that this school has made progress. They've been recognized for it, and that's to be commended. Yeah. Bullying does happen everywhere, and it certainly affects young men and women in the bleeding disorders community. I, I was pretty lucky growing up. I did not experience much bullying, in large part, though, because I was very socially strategic about how much I stood out or, or made yeah. myself a target in any way. But even still, I, I was made fun of for my weight, for my slings, crutches, and, and wheelchair use, uh, for sitting out gym classes when I, quote, seemed fine, for missing school all the time without seeming reasons, for not being able to ride a bike, for not having a second car in our family, actually, which, man, talk about privileged bullying. But that was it. So actually, as I talk it through, maybe... I was bullied a little bit more than I typically think back on. And, and maybe I've just chosen not to think back on it too much. I don't know. I'm, rev- I'm learning something about myself through this segment, Amy. I, I agree with you. I, I feel the same way. One of the things, when I was looking back, I re- we didn't have that word back then. Bullying wasn't a word. Mm. At least it wasn't a word for me. It was just, you know, kids being kids. Yes, same. And um, 
I think socially strategic is a wonderful word. I, I have a very distinct memory of being in the sixth grade and um, being in my room and my room looked into another house where um, some of my classmates lived. And uh, I was singing at the top of my lungs, like the soundtrack to Beauty and the Beast or something. I, it was a Disney related movie. Shocker. But like sing, <laughs> like giving it. Oh, like yeah. giving it, which I would do in my room all the time. And I heard just malicious laughter from these boys in this room. Oh. And they were my age. But the thing that's so interesting is I never stopped that practice of singing in my room. In fact, I did it in my college dorm, you know, very, hmm. you know, blindly and naively thinking that no one would be able to hear me sing at the top of my lungs. And I've always looked back on that experience wondering, I can't believe that 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 didn't stop me from doing that. I just remember closing the blinds, mm. but like, and being, you know, horribly shamed. But mm. then like, I, it, it like the, the necessity to do it, like kept going. That's interesting. So, it, but, but that wasn't considered bullying. I had never right. clicked that that was like something. It was just like a, it was just like a thing that happened. Yeah. You know, you're reminding me, I got shamed and embarrassed out of tap dancing classes because at some point, you no, know, my mom was so desperate to find non-contact sports that I could get involved with. So, you know, I was in swimming and chess club and painting and bowling. Like she was trying to get me away from basketball, like anything to save the body. And I, I got into tap dance at some point and it was actually, it was good for my ankle. It was keep, you know, it was opening my ankles and making me keep them flexing. But at some point, some of the kids started making fun of me for being, you know, one of the few boys in the tap cl class. And so I, I dropped out of that because I, I, I wouldn't say I was bullied, so to speak, in that case. But it was, it was peers being cruel and leading me to make decisions I would have otherwise not made. So anyway, obviously, this is something that's been around whatever vocabulary we've used for these experiences. This is something that isn't new and certainly isn't exclusive to our community. We'll talk with Ryan Gielen in a little bit about My Beautiful Stutter and about some of the experiences that children and people who stutter face and how that comes up in the film. Do a little bit of um, research before today's podcast. I put on my professional uh, hoodie, I guess. And I did some some digging, some internet sleuthing, <laughs> as it were. Internet sleuthing, just like a solid Google, just so, like yeah, big old yeah. Google sleuth, search. I, it's a great okay. word, so okay, great, I great. didn't want to say what you said. But anyway, there have been many pieces that have been written about bullying and particularly cyberbullying during the COVID pandemic. And of course, some of these pieces were written in July of last year, and they're framed as though the pandemic was nearing an end, which is adorable. There was one study by the National Institute of Health, and even just reading the overview that's provided in their abstract, I thought this was kind of interesting for, for this conversation. The title of the article is, Has the COVID-19 Pandemic Affected the Susceptibility to Cyberbullying in India? So this is specific in India, but I think the, what the abstract provides, I have to imagine so much of this extrapolates worldwide. So I'm just going to read this abstract. It's, it's informative. The research focuses on analyzing whether the factors significant in cyberbullying susceptibility changed with the lockdown. The study was conducted by surveying 256 students before the pandemic in October of 2019 and 118 students during the lockdown in June of 2020. So again, still kind of early in the lockdown compared to how long it lasted and the impact it had, but nonetheless, good information. This included questions about the respondents' demographics, online presence, experience with online bullying, perceptions of others online, and the instances of cyberbullying that apply to them. 
the results showed factors important in both time spans, namely one, experience with online bullying, two, individuals' perceptiveness to others' opinions, three, frequency of social media posts. Additionally, in the period before lockdown, factors, namely one, the tendency to interact with strangers online, two, whether they've started a relationship online, three, hours spent on social media were found significant. Conversely, during the lockdown, additional distinct factors, namely one, being opinionated on public platforms, two, preference of Instagram, three, preferred gaming platform, four, number of games played, five, sexual orientation, and six, age were significant. With the changes in variables in the two time spans, we can conclude that the pandemic has affected our susceptibility to cyberbullying. So again, this study was run out of India. It was run a number of months ago. But I think hearing those specific factors and the shifts that have taken place in, in terms of factors that make you susceptible before lockdown and post lockdown, it's indicative of something. What exactly? I do not know. But as I read it, it felt like it was something important to talk about, again, in the context of a conversation about bullying. I agree. And it'll be it, it's going to be great to uh, go into our conversation with Ryan about my beautiful stutter and his experiences um, with those kids kind of out in the world. And then, you know, to compare that to what it's like, um, you know, on the Internet, because it's a whole different thing. So it's a whole um, other ball game. Yeah. 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 So let's get to it. Let's uh, let's welcome Ryan um, from my beautiful stutter and we'll kind of talk about bullying in the stuttering world and much more. So that's next after this quick break. So Patrick and I are here with Ryan Geelan, director of My Beautiful Stutter and co-worker, friend, executive producer, all the things. Ryan, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Are you nervous? You feel a little nervous? So nervous. This is so <laughs> official. And I'm a longtime listener. Longtime listener. Oh. First, first time interviewee. <laughs> is that right? Have you not been on this before in this capacity? I've, I've actually, I've conducted interviews for the podcast, but I've never yes. personally been interviewed because I just don't do that many interesting things. So this is big for me. <laughs> I really wow. appreciate it. Well, this feels interesting. I mean, you directed like a whole film. It's on Discovery Plus, which is incredible. So tell us a little bit about it. What is my beautiful stutter? Why or how did you come to work on the film and where can people find it? That is all like, that's it. That's like the entire interview into one question. So don't Boom. blow it. You know We're what I'm very saying? Very efficient people. Brace yourself. I have a big, I have a big answer to all those questions. So oh, I, I am not a person who stutters. Um, just like he, the work we do in hemophilia, like I think I've become an adopted member of this particular community. And I actually learned a tremendous amount from working in bleeding disorders uh, that I was able to bring to this film. But I'll, I'll probably talk about that later. Mm -hmm. I think to your question about how I got involved, so my producer on this film is Michael Alden. He produced the King's Speech on Broadway and on the West End, the, the play version. And so he had become familiar with the Stuttering Association for the Young, or SAY, in New York City when he was promoting the King's Speech when it came to Broadway. And he was really bowled over by the work they do empowering young people who stutter um, because he, like me, had no idea that young people who stutter struggle um, in a psychosocial way with bullying, with feeling unheard, with feeling alone. He, like me, had lived most of his life either being very complacent, unaware, or at, in some, some cases 
rude and, and callous about engaging with people with a disfluency, whether it's stuttering or some other disfluency. So he, he had seen a couple of short films that I had made in a, in a sm very small feature film I had made called Turtle Hill, Brooklyn. He liked it. And he brought me to the 2014 Say Gala. And that, that was a night that changed my life. And I, I'll just paint a quick picture for you. So like you see in the film, the Say Gala is this gorgeous, huge 500 people dressed to the nines in this beautiful theater in New York City. Everybody comes in, the lights go down. There's a single spotlight on stage and this little eight-year-old boy in his you know little gray suit, little blue tie, his hair is like cut and gelled and he's holding a piece of paper, kind of walks out in this single spotlight with 500 people, you know, 500 adults dressed to the nine staring back at him. And he says, welcome to the 2014 Say Gala. But it took him 15 or 20 seconds to say it. And when he was done, because of his stutter, and when he was done, there was silence in the room. And you could see him look up from this piece of paper and look out. And it, I realized he was waiting to hear the laughter. He was waiting to hear... Oh, wow. The, the tittering. He was waiting to hear people whispering about how embarrassed he should be because he stuttered through that. But what ended up happening after three or four seconds of silence was a standing ovation. And in that moment, you could see him grow a foot. His entire being changed. His shoulders rolled back, his chest puffed out. You know, all he sh like just he, he sparkled, he floated off stage. Mm -hmm. Because he realized everything that he had been hearing from Say about the worthiness of his voice, about how the way he spoke was beautiful, and it was the world around him that was broken and needed to be fixed. He realized in that moment that it was true. Because you can tell a young person that. If you're, if you're a loving parent, you probably do. But until they experience it, until they experience something that changes their day-to-day -day engagement with the world, they're not going to believe that. But so that moment, that moment altered the course of his life. I'm convinced. Mm. Wow. And it altered the course of mine mm. because there's no way to experience that. And to then realize nobody knows this and mm. nobody's talking about it and nobody's telling this story. And there are kids like him. There are literally hundreds of thousands of kids like him all over the country who are not going to have this experience, but instead, every time they speak, they are going to hear the laughter or, or people whispering or teachers rolling their eyes or other people bullying them into attempting fluency. Right. Right. And so when, when you have that moment, when you see that young person on stage and you see what their life is like when they are not being supported, when they're being told by the world around them that fluency is the only path. And until and unless you are fluent, you are not worthy. You are not worthy of love. You're not worthy of friendship. You're not worthy of the positive experiences that every eight-year-old is, is worthy of in school. That's the message that is received over and over and over and over again. And when you realize that as a filmmaker, right, and as a compassionate person, and as somebody who was bullied at that age, you can't just say, well, that was a nice evening. I'm glad I went. You know, you have to do something. Um, so I, I left that evening pretty fired up and that, that fire has now led me on a seven year journey. There was, it took about a year to get a little bit of money to start filming and to get permission from say, to be the filmmaker that was going to tell this story. And then it took six years from 2015's gala 
to actually get the project out to the world. There is so much in what you just shared, but one of the things that really stood out to me there was your reference of your own experience with bullying. And just before you came on, Amy and I were sharing a little bit of our experience with bullying growing up. What did this project bring up for you? What in your own experience of bullying comes to the surface? What, what was your experience growing up? Yeah, I, I made a pretty conscious decision when it was clear that the film was going to come out and I was doing these Q&As. We had a chance to do um, Q&As for about 1,500 middle and high school kids in Northern California. And mm -hmm. in preparation for showing them the film and going up to do these, these talkbacks afterwards, I realized that a lot of these young people who are going to see the film could potentially think it's a good film, but it doesn't apply to me. Right. And, and I, I wanted to make it clear to them that the film is about realizing the inherent worth of every young person, regardless of things that make us quote unquote different and not mm -hmm. just about kids who stutter, because I think it's very important that for every young person who sees the film, they walk away inspired to see differences as valuable, as opposed to see differences as things to make fun of. Cause I think that's how the world actually is going to change, right. Or could potentially change. So I wanted, I wanted to reinforce that and I made a conscious decision that for the first time in my life, I would talk about my own experience where I felt like these young people in the film because it's not mm. about stuttering. When I was between the ages of about eight and 11 or 12, I was bullied for being fat. And I don't use mm. that word. That word is, is not politically correct. That word's not appropriate, but I, I use it in this context because that's the word that was made to make me feel less than. That's mm -hmm. the word that was used over and over and over again to make me feel unworthy of love and friendship and, and the joy that you should have in going to school and playing with other kids and learning, right? But that word was used to bully me. And I started talking about it to this group of, of young people. And in every Q&A, there would inevitably be multiple kids who would say, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm bullied for the same thing, or I'm bullied for this, or I'm bullied because I have a prosthesis. Right, it enabled sort of additional lines of dialogue to ripple mm. out, and I, and I also mention it because it, it occurred to me through this process that I wasn't just making the film for the eight-year-old that I saw open the state gala in 2014. I was also making it for eight-year-old me, right? And, and there are a lot of eight-year-old me's out there still. You know, I remember. So, so one of the things that comes up a lot in the film is that. When young people who stutter are bullied or made to feel less than, and they go to their parents or they go to a, a speech language pathologist, what comes back to them is, okay, we're going to do everything we can to make you fluent. Right. And unfortunately, it comes from a place of love in a lot of cases, but the message that's received is, I'm glad you came. Now we have a chance to fix you. Mm -hmm. And when you establish that dynamic, what you are telling that kid implicitly and sometimes explicitly is until or unless you are fluent, you are broken and the world around right. you is correct to make fun of you. Right. And so that is a huge thing for speech language pathologists to reckon with, for parents to reckon with and for kids who stutter to reckon with. And what I was able to recall and, and to really deal with for the first time in my adult life is there was one time I was bullied so consistently that I, I, I went to the counselor at age eight or nine. And I said, I can't take it anymore. I'm bullied for being fat. And her response to me was, have you tried eating more fruits and vegetables? Wow. And it's an exact parallel from my point of view to what these young people experienced. The message mm -hmm. was 
that sucks, but you are broken. So let's mm. try to fix you instead of let's try to fix the world around you. Mm. And it occurred to me, I think the more I can talk about that, the more I can invite people into what might seem like a small film or a small world. Right. So I mm. talk about that as often as I can, because I want to make sure parents here and, and speech language pathologists hear a couple things when they hear about this film. I want to make sure they hear that even with the best intentions, you could be setting up the wrong dynamic for the kids you work with. Mm-hmm. Or you as a parent could be setting up the wrong dynamic for this kid who you would run through a brick wall for. You would give anything to, to help. But sometimes from places of love, you can still make things worse. And it's true for SLPs too. There's 200,000 SLPs working in the United States right now. And they wow. work in school systems, they work in private practices, and they deal with a lot of these fluencies other than stuttering. But the, the, the challenge for them is often they want so badly to make things better for the young people they work with. Mm-hmm. And the training, this is, this is the case less and less now as, as thinking evolves, but in general, the training is so focused on how do we fix these kids? Mm. And the reality is the kids need something different. They need that balanced with awareness that they are perfect and worthy as they are. As also a non-stuttering person, but someone who has hemophilia and, and thinks I have some life experiences that are relevant when speaking to people who stutter, not all, but some. But I remember the first time I was on set for a shoot and interviewing people who stutter I realized that I had never spoken to at any length of significance, people who stutter, let alone interviewed them. And I have to admit, I, I found it kind of challenging at first. I realized in the moment, cause I was not expecting it. It was, I realized in the moment that I had to shift some of my expectations and my habits of interrupting or anticipating what someone was going to say, offering another way to frame something as I was listening to people speak in a way that I was unaccustomed to. And I felt, I felt pretty insecure to be perfectly honest and just tried my best to be sensitive and kind of turn that part of myself on even before the filmmaker part of myself. Did you have any experiences like that when you were first starting on the project? I did, but I, I was, I was lucky because, you know, one of the central characters in the film is Taro Alexander, a person who stutters, who started say, because something like say didn't exist where young people from all over the country can come to camp or come to these, these New York city workshops. Now there's camps all over the country for say like tarot was my role model for how to engage with people who stutter to show them Mm -hmm. the most respect possible. And tarot has this, this like beautiful Zen, like listening approach. And you can see it in the film. He, he, he locks on, and you can see his whole being is present and focused and participating with the exact individual that he is speaking with at any given time. Mm. And young people in his young people at say really, really flock to that because they, they hardly receive that or they don't receive that anywhere else. And after watching tarot work, you know, being, being relaxed and behind the camera and being a fly on the wall, it kind of clicked, you know, there is a, a way to show respect while asking questions and interjecting when appropriate, but to really maintain your, your distance in a way from what you are talking about, right? You ask your question, you wait till it's done. 
And then when, what happens is when young people, especially who are used to Tarot's approach, who are used to being heard, when they realize you are capable of that, they will signal when they are done speaking. They will signal mm. to you. They will, they will make sure that you hear the period at the end of their sentence. Their mm. posture will change. Their expression will change. And they will signal to you, thank you very much for that very respectful listening. Now is the time for your next question. And it's not explicit, but it is, this, it is something that the more present you are, the right. more you will recognize. And it, it opened up a lot of wonderful dialogue. But watching Tarot do that and the way he does it in the film, I think, is just really, really powerful. And a great model for anybody who, like you, wants to be more empathetic in conversations with people with disfluency. One of the things I was so taken back by in the film was um, there was a young woman who mentioned how exhausting, how physically exhausting it is to live in the world and to stutter and to go to school. And when she comes home, she's just wiped. And I think her mother even mentioned it. It like took a minute for her to realize, oh, it's exhausting for her to be at school. And you know, from your experience working with these kids, you you filmed them. It seemed like at home and in some friend environments, and then at camp. What, what what was their demeanor at camp different from like their own home environment? Did you sense the exhaustion? Were they able to relax a little bit more? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, there, there's a really powerful moment in the film and in the trailer when one young man who's been participating in Say's camp for years. He stands up at sort of the closing night bonfire and says, you know, some people talk about they're going home and then they'll come back to camp, you know, in a year. But this is my home and I'm going mm -hmm. away to camp for the next 50 weeks. And then at the end of that year, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to come back home. And I think that's very, very reflective of what most young people's experiences at camp say, because it is the place where when they show up, all of a sudden the world is completely, and the world is completely inverse mm -hmm. to what it is out in the real world. Every right. single person there stutters. Every single person there lets people have the space they need to speak. There's, there's something that I try to paint. So I've done 225, almost 200, maybe 226 screenings of the film over the last two years. Uh, about 100, 110 of those were in person. The remainder were virtual. I've done Q and A's after almost all of them and probably 60 to 70% of the audience has been speech language pathologists and people who stutter or family members of people who stutter. The SLPs ask all the time and, and Amy, I promise this addresses what you're describing, right? It's like what environment is, makes these young people feel at home and, and how does, how would you describe that environment? SLPs ask all the time, you know, what advice would you give us? We've, we've taken a lot from the film, but what advice would you give? You want to leave us with something. And I talk about a visual that, that has come to my mind quite a bit in just trying to understand the demeanor and, and the experience of a young person who stutters. And the visual is, let's say you have a, a comfortable, happy home life. Your parents give you the time you need to speak and, and they're very supportive or your parent or your guardian is super supportive. The moment you leave the front door to go to school, right? From, from literally the front door, you know you're gonna have to get on the bus, you know you're gonna have to deal with, with kids in the hall, you know you're gonna have to deal with teachers, coaches, counselors, and get back on the bus, come home. From the time you leave the front door to the time you return through it, your armor is up. 
Yeah. You disconnect a little bit. You put your armor up. You say, I just have to get through this. And then I can come right back in this door at the end of the day and let my armor down. Just get through, just get through all that. If, if home is tough, that armor goes up the minute you wake up. Before you even get out of bed. You wake up and you're like, okay, let's get the armor on. And we'll just get back to this room and close the door at the end of the day. And that, that's a brutal, difficult way to live for a young person. No young person should have to experience that and, and live that way. The armor goes up. When I talk to SLPs or when SLPs ask me about advice or the film, I say, I don't know a lot about speech language pathology. I don't know a lot about the terminology and the mission. So I'll, I'll leave you with this, just one particular question or challenge. How, does you, how can you make your practice feel like a place where the armor can come down? as opposed to a place where the armor has to stay up. Because if all you focus on is fluency, the armor will stay up. Because no child who goes through therapy, speech language pathology, which they commonly refer to as just therapy, no child who goes through that is going to become fluent. And if they do become fluent temporarily or their fluency improves a little bit, it will very often revert and not just mm -hmm. revert a little bit. It will often revert to how they speak. <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity to build tools and improve a little bit and find tricks and, and tips. But ultimately, tools and strategies are not going to make someone fluent. If a stutter is permanent, a stutter is permanent. So how do you make your practice feel like a place where the message the young person is receiving over and over and over again is, if you never become 1% more fluent, you are still worthy of love and friendship and joy because that is not a message they receive. And that message will be way more impactful on the outcome of their life and their happiness and their well-being than let me give you a tip to hide how you stutter on the letter S or the letter L or a strategy for breathing. So that that's the kind of visual that I always try to come back to when someone asks about the demeanor at home, the demeanor at camp, the demeanor at school. That's the visual. And I think if people keep that visual in mind, even lay people like us, if that's the visual we keep in mind, when we engage with people who stutter, if our goal is, hey, I want, I want them to feel like they can take the armor off, that's going to give us a great path for engaging with people with disfluency. Hmm. Because it's going to make us more empathetic. It's going to make us more calm. It's going to make us a better listener. My Beautiful Stutter is streaming on Discovery+. Plus. You can get a free trial to Discovery Plus if you don't already have it, and you can watch my beautiful stutter for free. You even get a week to do so. How about that? Ryan, we're about at our time, but I have one last question for you, which is you mentioned the 225-plus screenings, all the SLPs and stuttering community members who have seen the film. It is now on Discovery Plus. So as a filmmaker, you mentioned it's been a seven-year journey. I, I, I can't imagine this is the end of the journey, but it sounds as though you've reached the point where the film is out. People are engaging with it. It's on a major platform. You've promoted it. What is your relationship to the film now? What's still to be done? What are, what's on your mind with regard to my beautiful stutter? Oh, I, I was talking to my wife about it the other day. It, it feels kind of like empty nest syndrome. You know, like when parents have kids <laughs> go off to college, it's bittersweet. Um, but I am, I'm ready to, you know, I would like to release a book based on the film. I'd like to release a podcast series based on the film. I'd like bloodstream to be, you know, the place where we release it so that we are continuing to grow what bloodstream media is and the impact it can have. 
but ultimately I'm, I'm ready to move on. I feel like I've, I've given it everything I have. And I hope what happens is I hope the stuttering community and the SLP community sees it and shares it. And I hope it's a resource for them for a long time. But just as importantly, I think the only way the world really changes around young people who stutter is if people like us on the outside see the film, share it, and it actually means something to us. Because I think that's that's what needs to change. I don't think SLPs can be more empathetic. I don't think, mm. you know, they're, they're already incredibly empathetic. I don't think young people who stutter need to, like, fix anything. You know, I, I think it's the people like us around them that need to see this. And, and that's my hope is that we see it and we, we learn to listen. So see it, share it, tell a friend, mybeautifulstutter.com or search My Beautiful Stutter on Discovery+. Plus. Ryan, congratulations. It's been awesome to be a, a backseat witness to this journey and to have been able to participate in some of the screenings, to watch how the cast has been impacted by their experience of getting to share the film and share the story and engage with audiences. It's been such a cool ride. Congratulations. There's so much to be proud of. And uh, let's see what we can do with that book and podcast next. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the support. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you, Ryan, for joining us again. My Beautiful Stutter, it is available now on Discovery+. Plus. You can sign up for a free trial if you do not have Discovery+. Plus. My Beautiful Stutter, streaming now. And join us next week for our World Hemophilia Day episode. We will talk with Save One Life, which is one of our favorite organizations, but... There's a twist. a twist. There's a twist. Save uh -huh. One Life has been working with Brown University, mm. business students from Brown University who have looked into their Project Share program, which we know so much about, and actually added their thoughts about how we could streamline and make that program oh, more wow. efficient. It's also broadened their view about what hemophilia is and our community into their degree. So anyway, fantastic interview with students from Brown. You have to check it out next week. That is very cool. Perfect for a World Hemophilia Day episode. So thank you for that, Amy. Thank you for that tease. Thank you, Greg, for everything you do for the Bloodstream Podcast and everyone at the Bloodstream team. Thank you, Ryan. Again, appreciate you coming on. Thank you all for listening. And thanks to Kata for being the presenting sponsor of the Bloodstream Podcast, bleedingdisorders.com to learn more. And that is all for this episode. Do you have a bleeding disorders or health topic you would like to hear us discuss? Is there an expert or guest that you're dying to hear from? Do you want to inquire about casting opportunities for Bloodstream or Believe Limited's narrative and docu-styled podcasts and video series and everything else we do? Well, you can email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can follow Amy Board, Patrick James Lynch on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Shout out to all the committed LinkedIn users out there. By the way, LinkedIn usage way up during the pandemic. I read about that too in preparation for this episode. So just oh. way, 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 way up. So uh, just, you know, anyway, oh, I am your don't host. encourage him. <laughs> it's research. If the research encourages me, I think it makes me right. I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Borg. <laughs> and until next time, if we don't rip each other's heads off, Take self-care of each other. Each other? Well, yeah. Take self-care of each other and yourselves and everyone else in your life. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>